Hope y'all are doing well. We're in the book of First Peter, uh, studying uh, what it means to be a believer in Christ, not just on Sundays, but, but every day, how, how we live that out every single day. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to First Peter. First Peter is actually remarkably um, applicable to our day and time. It gives us lots of practical understandings of what it means to be a believer. Uh, it was written around year six, AD 63 or so. Uh, there was a bunch of Christians uh, and they were all together in one kind of area, living out community, living out what it means to be a believer. And no one had ever been Christians before, so they're the first ones. And then persecution came. And when persecution came, it, you can see in chapter 1, verse 1, that they were all dispersed everywhere, fleeing persecution. They didn't want to die. And so Peter, as after this happened, wrote this letter to them to address a few things. Uh, since they were no longer in community, gives, gives them some ideas about what it means to be a believer in Christ, uh, holy living, how, how you're supposed to live a holy life now, as well as just some other things that you would think would be normal, uh, like <clears throat> if the government is persecuting us, um, what's our role in, in understanding how, how much do we have to participate in or be a part of the government? Can we rebel against them? And then lastly, hey, we're being persecuted. Why? If we're Christians, I thought we weren't supposed to be. And so he's He's answering and talking about some of these particular things in this particular book. Uh, and as we're going through, we're getting to the answer for, we've already talked about holiness, we've talked about submission to the government and what some of that looks like. And now we're getting to this particular section at chapter 3, verse 8, about suffering, about persecution. So I want to be, I want to be clear, uh, when we talk about suffering, a lot of times our minds can kind of go all, all over and think really broad. And I want, I want to narrow it for us and make sure we understand the context of what kind of suffering he's talking about. Because there's all kinds of suffering and uh, they all fit in the context, uh, but he's talking about a specific kind. So because we live in a Genesis 3 world, a broken world where sin has entered, uh, we have the situation where people are going to suffer, like go through cancer or have, or have things like that. We also have um, hurricanes and floods where people suffer because of things that happen like that. But we also have suffering in this particular, and this is the context we're talking about, suffering for righteousness sake. So because I'm a Christian, I'm living my faith out and people come and persecute me and I'm experiencing suffering. That third kind that I'm, I'm talking about is what Peter's talking about. So I'm not diminishing suffering that would happen medically. I'm not diminishing suffering that would happen because of natural disasters. Uh, but in this particular uh, section when we're talking about suffering is applicable to suffering for righteousness sake. Um, we're going to, as I said, be in First Peter chapter 3 verse 8. So if you have a Bible, you can open up. Um, it's towards the end of the, of the Bible in the New Testament. If you don't have one, just look underneath you. There's a little white and blue Bible. Just take that. It's yours. Uh, keep it forever or Take two and give one away to someone that you know doesn't have a Bible. We, we, we buy those in order to give them away. So we want you to keep them. Um, if you were here with us last week, you'll notice that last week we finished at chapter 2, verse 25. And I've skipped chapter 3, 1 through 7. And I'm starting at verse 8. That's intentional. Uh, that particular section uh, is on marriage. And so we're going to hold off until Valentine's Day uh, and do it on Valentine's Day strategically. Um, but if you're, And also just a reminder... Chapter 2, verse 13 through 3, 7 is all in the big context of submission. So as Peter was writing and talking about, you need to submit to your government. This is what it means to submit in slaves and versus masters and things like that. And even submission unto Christ. He even talks about answering that submission question in the context of marriage, which we'll address in two weeks. Um, but here we've gotten to chapter 3, verse 8. Uh, and I want to... Uh, read the whole text and then we'll pray. Uh, but remember, the, the, the big context here is 
um, suffering for righteousness sake. Uh, here at Remedy, we, we pick on the whole, um, there are exceptions. And even after we finish this book, we'll, we'll probably make a, a little uh, two or three week exception. I, I should say after Easter. But on the whole, we pick books of the Bible and just preach through books of the Bible. That's the way we, we do it. We don't, we don't necessarily pick a topic and just talk on that, uh, four different things about that topic in the next week. I'm not saying that's wrong. We certainly do that sometimes. But on the whole, 40 out of 52 weeks throughout the year, we just pick a book of the Bible and preach through it. And there's a lot of reasons, but two big picture reasons why are um, I'm convinced that, that Christians really want to understand the Bible they really want to, as they read this, understand it. And the best way that that can happen is um, a study of preaching through books of the Bible so that afterwards you know what First Peter's about and all the different topics that Peter will address. Because we'll still address topics like marriage, etc., but the way that, that they were written by God. Uh, so the first thing is I, I have a deep desire or a deep belief, I'm convinced, that people want to understand hard texts in the Bible. And if I just don't preach through books, I'll avoid hard texts. I just... I'll just pick a topic and talk about it and we'll never ever talk about Noah preaching to the spirits uh, in verse 20. No one will ever talk about that with you. Like that, that's not a, ever gonna be a topical thing at, at a topical preaching series. Noah and the spirits, like that's not happening. Um, so we preach through books of the Bible because I'm convinced that Christians wanna understand it uh, and most of them don't. The second reason we preach through books of the Bible and this is likely the most important is because it's the best thing I think as a pastor I can do for your soul because of what the Bible says it is, what it'll do, lead us into righteous, train us for godliness, etc. That the best thing I can do is give you more of the Bible and less of my thoughts and that because of that, you'll grow more and more spiritually. You'll be, I think, the strongest believer you can be. So uh, while we still will do some topical series, on the whole, we preach through books of the Bible. I, I like to remind you that every once in a while. For those of you that have been here, you've heard me say that a billion times. Um, but for those that might be new, that's, that's why we pick books of the Bible on the whole 40 out of 52 weeks and, and preach through them. We did Matthew, so you can praise God if you missed that. That took a uh, hundred sermons, I think. So it was like two and a half years, like we're still in Matthew. Um, we took little breaks. But anyway, First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 8. I'm going to read the text and then we will we'll pray and then we'll, we'll look at it. Verse 8. Finally, all of you. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ as Lord, as the Lord, as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good, good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered, once for the sins, once for sins, I'm sorry, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may, might bring us back to God. 
being put to death in the flesh, but being, but being made, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Lord, in a lot of ways, this is a, uh, a difficult task, and so I pray that you would give me the gift of taking difficult things and preaching them in, a, in an easy-to-understand manner. Not that they're simplistic. Uh, they are weighty and, and deep. But I pray that you would give me the gift of being able to teach them in a manner that's easy to understand. And more than that, God, I, I pray that we won't just have a mere cursory understanding or knowledge of these things. But instead, that our heart would want to see these things happen in our lives. Our heart would want to submit unto you that if persecution for righteousness sake comes, that we are prepared to say, Jesus is my only hope. I pray that you would use this text this morning to uh, bring us to that. To bring us to a heart that is desiring only Christ. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, suffering in America, for righteousness sake, suffering for Christ in America is, is pretty difficult to see. Comparative to most of the world, comparative to most of the eras that we've lived in, it's not, not, not very common. Uh, I want to read a, a quote from a, a guy named John Piper. He's a pastor, re- retired pastor now, uh, and he puts it into context for us what suffering for righteousness sake and just how just how different it is for us. Now, before I read it, I want to make sure we all understand. <laughs> you, you didn't choose the year that you were born. If you did, you would have maybe chose a different time period. You didn't choose the country you were born in. God sovereignly chose those things. So I'm not reading this to make you feel guilty about living in 2016 in the South. That's just where you live. Uh, but on, on the whole, I want you to hear this in order to say, wow, God, what a privilege that you've put me here that I don't have to be persecuted. But at the same time, looking forward into our country and the the trajectory, if we just look at Revelation, we know that it's going to get worse no matter what. And perhaps even now, that if that would happen, if what we're going to hear in this particular text does happen, that I wouldn't retreat and run away from Jesus, but instead I would be prepared to be the kind of believer who does experience persecution and suffering the way that you would want. So Piper says, most Americans are insulated from the bigger world outside our little country, uh, which is, we're about 5% of the world. 95% of the world is not American and does not experience what we experience. And we're also insulated uh, inside our own little American era, which is about 5% of the last 6,000 years. So uh, it's a very small amount in our time period has lived the way we lived. For most of the world and for most of history, being a Christian has not been safe. Most Christians are not safe. 
we're very different. Then he says, Stephen Neal, the author of History of Christian Missions, said in the first three centuries, the church was spreading like wildfire whenever it wasn't safe. And he writes, Stephen Neal writes, every Christian knew that sooner or later, he will have to testify to his faith at the cost of his or her life. So we live in a very remarkably different time period than most Christians. For most Christians, most of the time, they knew that the time would come for them to have to testify about their faith and it would be at the cost of their life. Either Jesus or death. Like I'm going to say yes to Jesus and get death or I'm going to say I don't know him and I'm going to get to live. Uh, And remarkably enough, he says, in those particular time periods, whenever suffering was happening at the hands of non-believers towards Christians, that's when the church spread like wildfire. Throughout history, and this is just if you look over church history, throughout church history, the church has spread and gotten bigger at the threat of persecution, not smaller. The gospel spreads more whenever suffering for righteousness sake happens. I think that's something for us to think about if the gospel's not spreading as fast as we would want it to happen in America. Likely that's the case. Now, that doesn't mean, so God, come persecute us. Bring it on. We want it so that we would not be masochists that would just welcome, like, suffering and death. But at the same time, I think it's something for us to think about to say, if it does come, we want the church to grow. Now, I don't know what's the future for the, for the country. Um, will it get easier? Will it get difficult? Will it wrap back around like it was in the 50s and 60s and become very, very easy in America like it was then and everybody's a Christian? I think that if that's the case, we'll see the rise of nominal Christianity again where everybody's just a Christian because that's what you're supposed to be and lots of people have no idea what that means. Um, or the trajectory could be that's going to become more and more difficult that it's going to be even more difficult to say that you're a believer in Christ. I think it's that one. I think it's the second that's going to happen. And I know that that in the the end, that's the ultimate end. We can read Revelation and know that that that's going to only become more difficult. But we are only going to live right now. (laughs) This is where we live. You might not live in the South. You might move to another place in America or out of this world or out of this country. Um, But you're only going to live in 2016 until. And so, if that's the case, and persecution does get um, more around us, if we start receiving persecution for righteousness sake, this particular text here, uh, in a lot of way, gives us insight. It answers the question, what does that look like then? How am I supposed to live as a Christian in the context of suffering? Now, this is Peter writing to those who are being persecuted, but in a lot of ways, it's, it, it's very applicable to most Christians in the world, not necessarily to our experience but it could be one day to our experience. Uh, I'm doing something a little different this time. I'm not putting anything on the screen behind me. I usually put my points up there. I do have points, but I'm not gonna put them up on the screen behind me because I want you to, I want you to listen with me. You can write, feel free to write if you're type A and you got to, that's fine. Um, but uh, I want you to just listen more so. Uh, if you need to know, there, there's kind of three big picture ways that Peter addresses this. And and they're right there in the text. They're even, at least in my Bible, sectioned off. The first one is in verses 8 through 12, where he gives us, this is kind of the knowledge you need to know. These are things you need to know, external Christian principles regarding suffering. This is what it looks like on the outside. Uh, This is how, if you want to know what it looks like on the outside. 
And then in 13 through 17, he talks about faith. He talks about our hope in Christ. And this is what you need to believe if you're going to. This is what you need to know and what it looks like externally. This is what you need to believe if you're going to be a follower in Christ and, and, and experience suffering. And then in verses 18 through 22, he gives us some, some handles or some, some reasons why, some, some preparation points, if you will, that if we're experiencing suffering, here's some things that can give you strength through suffering. So that's kind of the three big picture ways he addresses it. Things you need to know externally, what, what the anchor is, which is faith, and then lastly, some, some ways to have strength through suffering. Um, but let's, let's look at verse eight and let's see that maybe that first big idea. So we're, we're talking about in the context of community life, if we experience suffering for righteousness sake in that, then, then what does that mean? What, is, what does that look like? So fi- he says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brother, love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So in verse eight, he gives us, to begin with, five, five ways to build a community so that if these five things are present and suffering happens, you are prepared. So, I mean, you could even take these five things and put them in, implement them into your community group. These are five things that are good things to have inside our community group constantly. So no matter what happens, suffering or anything, these are five things that we can have. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, humble mind. Uh, I'll give you a quick kind of run through of what these means. Uh, a unity of mind. Sproul points out that there's a lot of ways that we could go. We're, we're unified in mind because we all want the Panthers to win the Super Bowl. <laughs> That's not what he means. He doesn't mean unity of mind in, in all things. Um, he does mean in, in a way in all things, but he's, he's being very specific. Sproul says, unity of mind in that we have conformity of the mind of Christ by mutual submission to the word of God as our lifelong endeavor. So when we're talking about unity of mind, he's specifically talking about that we would have a unity of mind around the word of God, around Christ, desiring the mind of Christ. Not that we all just agree on the same sports team. That's actually not on his mind at all. But instead, it's about unity of mind around Christ. The next one is sympathy. Um, And this is compassion. This is, at its essence, compassion. And, And Sproul points out, that the etymology of this word is, is, is deeper than what we would think. It's not feeling a certain way for someone regarding something. Instead, it's literally entering into and feeling with them in their situation, feeling their emotions with them. So you're not just feeling kind of bad for them. Ah, I feel bad for you. Hope it works out. It's entering into the situation with them and literally feeling with them through it. That's what we mean by sympathy or compassion. Um, a, a much more deeper word than what at least... And our kind of like fly by, feel bad for you, uh, America. The next one is brotherly love. Uh, this is deep affections for each other that are built and shared with one another um, in, in, in a long period of time. So we're, we're building in our mind brotherly affection that's built on longevity. It, this is not achieved in a, uh, in a one-time game night on a, on a Friday. It can be on a long-term basis of not just game nights, but going through good times, going through tough times, caring for one another, being there for one another, spend a lot of time with prayer, being there within mission. This is, a, this is an idea that if you're gonna have a, a, a deep brotherly love for each other, that it's built through time in biblical community. You're in there for the long haul and you're not, you're not bailing if things get tough. That's brotherly love. A tender heart, um, 
tender-hearted, Sproul says, the word that Peter is using here does not necessarily describe a physical touch, but a visceral, an instinctual, an emotional one. It's your, your heart is so tender towards them that instinctually you always want to be tender towards them and never unkind. So a tender heart that it becomes your, your instinct uh, because of Christ, obviously, that you want to be tender. And lastly, a humble mind, a humble mind. Sproul says the idea is not just in regard to ideas presented to you that you're humble, but it's also your total attitude towards people. That everything about you wants to be humble towards them. So in verse 8, he lists in in a very positive sense what community can look like and how we interact, especially uh, building that so when suffering comes we're prepared. In verse 9, he changes from positive over to negative. He, He talks about from community living over to, all right, now we're experiencing direct suffering Uh, In a negative sense, this is what you don't do. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Which, by the way, if you look up to 2.23, he's already said Jesus himself did not uh, revile when he was, when he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten. So Christ himself in 2.23 didn't do that. And we, as his followers, would take his example and not do it. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling or reviling. But on the contrary, and this is, at least for me, so out of what I would think. Whenever people do evil to me, whenever people revile me, I'm commanded here not to just kind of like take it or say, ah. But instead, I'm commanded to bless back towards them. That's not my nature at all. It's either keep my mouth shut and take it and just let you be over a neutral zone where (laughs) I just hope that thing happened not so good for you. Or I want to strike back and make it happen. And he says bad things. But he says instead, bless. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. To this you were called. So we are called then to bless others. We're called to bless others. This is an imperative by God to us. And all it takes, I think, is is once. I mean, we can, we can have a, a long, long kind of period of, of having things go well and continually, and all of a sudden we, we strike back evil for evil, and all that work we've done is just gone. Any kind of longevity of hard work with one kind of strike back that's negative, most of the time ends most of the work that we've done with someone. Uh, I was uh, taking a test to enter into a, a program to be able to do it, and it's it one of these tests where you have to sit down for three hours. They, they give you three big questions and you have to type for, for three hours and you, you kind of, as soon as you get it, you, you jot down a quick outline, jot down a quick outline, jot down a quick line and you just work for an hour on the first one, work for an hour on the second one, work for an hour on the third one, type for three straight hours and when you hand it in, it, you actually have to do it twice, once in the morning and another three hours in the afternoon and when you hand it in, uh, they admit you into the program based on, on how you did at that particular moment. So, um, I was typing and I was typing and I have always used a Mac. So in a Mac, this is details, but anything, any, actually any general knowledge about a Mac is always helpful. So um, it, I'm just kidding. So when you're typing, if you want a backspace, you kind of hit backspace. But the more helpful way I think is backspace is the function, which goes backwards instead of, you know, bringing it to the cursor. You can actually go this way and go backspace. I know that's insane, but my, here's my point. I'm so like instinctually now when I type, whenever I want to do that, I just do it. So here on, on this, on this 
piece of junk that I'm typing on because it's a PC. I'm taking this test and I, I, as I'm finishing up my three hours, I'm like, oh, that's not right. And instinctually, backspace. Well, on the piece of junk PC, when you backspace that way, apparently that just shuts it down to blue screen and it goes to everything's gone. And so in this moment, my heart is absolutely bereft with the loss that has happened because three hours of work is gone and I failed the program. Like there's no, there's no end. And so I'm freaking out. I'm like, ah! I mean, I literally screamed out loud in the class and everybody looks at me uh, like, and this little note comes up. It's like, you've messed up big time. Basically, you can do these things and if you get back to it, like, so I get back to it and I'm like, and I get to it. Save, 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 save. Okay, don't mess up again. And my whole point is, is this. Uh, one, inquisic, one quick impulsive move wiped away all my hard work and, and, le- and left me, as I said, bereft of my loss. Same thing. Same exact thing. You can put in all kinds of hard work over a long lifetime. One inquis- quick impulsive move where you repay evil for evil. You are left bereft of the loss of that friendship that, or relationship you've had. Instead, we don't repay evil for evil. We don't revile when we're reviled, but we continually bless. Now, you will not be able to do that on your own power. I, there's no way I can do that on my own power. But by the power of Christ, we can. We can. Uh, Edmund Clowney, no relation, no relation to Javian, says, Christians are free from vindictiveness because they trust God's justice. They trust God's justice. So we don't have to pay evil for evil because I trust God and his justice. He knows how to be just and I don't. So I don't have to do it. I'm just trusting you. And either they're going to get justice from you one day or you've already poured it out on Christ and there's no reason for me not to trust that they've already received justice in in full. So Christians are free from vindictiveness because we trust God's justice. But he also says, but they're now free for blessing. So he takes it one step further. Not only do we know the justice of God, we know the goodness of God. And so since we know the fullness of the goodness of God, he says, we're also free now to bless because we've already received the goodness from God. So we have the ability to give them or let them see the goodness of God. And as Peter is writing this, he says, therefore, you never ever return evil for evil, but you bless them. And then he grounds that, that command. He says, here's why. He's going to give them a, a theological backing of why that's true by quoting Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16. That's where you can see in verses 10, 11, and 12, he's quoting Psalm 34, which, by the way, he's already quoted Psalm 34 once. He loves Psalm 34. And, and chapter 2, verse 3, if indeed you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that's Psalm 34. I think it's 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Here he's quoting Psalm 34 again. So if anybody ever asks you what's Peter's favorite psalm, you can say 34. Um, he told me. Anyway, uh, 4, so he's given us the, uh, the grounding of why we never repay evil for evil. 4, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Hmm, what is he saying? Love life and see good days. Now, take yourself back up. He's talking about suffering for Christ, and he's calling those good days. When someone reviles you, don't repay it, and when you keep your tongue from speaking evil, you see good days when that evil's done against you. That's not what I think is good. All right, verse 11. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. 
And his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So in quoting Psalm 34, Peter's doing something for us. He's helping us see something. We're commanded to not repay evil for evil, but instead bless. And if we bless, even when evil's done against us, he's calling those good days. So as he's quoting Psalm 34, he's telling us that we need to persevere in suffering. He's saying, ultimately, you actually live good days. Ultimately, you're given the ability to pursue and seek peace, as it says in verse 11. Ultimately, God's going to hear your prayers, as it says in verse 12, that he opens their ears to their prayers. Ultimately, we will do good, as it says in verse 11. And so a reordering or a redefining of, quote, good days is happening before our eyes. Clowney again says this. He says, Peter affirms this, although he knows that days of suffering are going to come. So this this is written to where they knew it was going to come. We we don't know. You don't know if suffering's ever going to come. Likely, maybe it won't. Maybe you'll never be persecuted. But he's saying this. In this particular time, they know suffering's going to happen, and it's going to be good days when suffering happens. How is that possible? Here's how. And he says this, yet the blessing of the Lord will make days of suffering good days. The blessing of the Lord will make days of suffering good days. A good day today in a television beer commercial pictures friends imbibing in the sunset at a fishing lodge and saying, it doesn't get any better than this. I remember that from the 80s, if you remember it. Doesn't get any better than this. Clowney says, a good day in the book of Acts is this, Paul and Silas in a Greek prison with their backs bleeding and their feet in the stocks, singing psalms at midnight, perhaps Psalm 34. And Silas, now sitting beside Peter, would remember with him the words of Jesus, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. In other words, good days get redefined by Jesus. So yeah, this is good days whenever evil comes against us because whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will save it. And so there's a total redefinition of what good days means. For us, for Christians, good days means walking in the will of the Lord no matter what comes. No matter what comes. That's good. So the first thing regarding suffering here is he gives us knowledge of external principles when walking through suffering that we have a community that looks like verse 8 we have a principle given to us in verse 9 that if evil is given to us we don't repay instead we bless and a reordering or a redefinishing of what good even means it means walking in the will of the Lord so all of a sudden everything gets recategorized for us that's the first section the second section he does is as he's talked about those kind of external principles of suffering. Now in the second one, he dives into the foundation or the source of the only way that you will make it through suffering, which is our faith in Christ. Faith in Christ alone. Uh, let me show you where that is. So look at verse 15 with me. It says, in your hearts, here it is, regard Christ as Lord. So in our hearts, in, in the innermost person of who we are, we want to say, Christ is Lord. Not me. When we say Lord, curios, we mean the king, the ruler, the reigner, the one over everything. He's in charge of everything. So in my heart, I'm going to say he is absolute supreme. And then it says this. We regard Christ as Lord, as, as holy, 
always be in prayer to make an offense to anyone who asks you for the hope that is in you. Obviously, that hope is pointing towards Christ. So our hope, our trust, our faith, our ultimate belief is in Christ and Christ alone. So this second section, when we're talking about what does community life or when we're experiencing community or suffering come to us, we're talking about what's the ultimate hope we have. He's pointing us to say, your only hope for faith, your only hope for experiencing suffering um, and having yourself go all the way through it, your only source for real sustenance all the way through it is hope in Christ and Christ alone. It's the only way you're going to make it through. It has to be rock solid anchored on Jesus and Jesus alone. And if it is, then the redefinition of, of, of good days happens. And you can say, your will alone, yes. If it's not, if it's anchored on safety, if it's anchored, anchored on security, if it's anchored on money, if it's anchored on even good things, like my only hope is, is my family, this is a good thing, it's a gift from the Lord, but if that's your ultimate anchor, it's done. Because all that has to happen is one of those things be taken away and your whole faith is, is a mess and it's, and it's done for. So instead, Christ is our only hope. Christ is, our hope is in Christ and in Christ alone. I want to point out uh, another text. Uh, I've, I've referred us to this in regard to suffering a few times here and there as, as we talk about suffering. But in Philippians chapter 1, I want to make sure we understand uh, I want to make sure we understand suffering and faith. So in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, uh, I think we would all agree that our ability to believe in Jesus is is a gift from God. Philippians 1, 29 is is quite evident. Ephesians 2, 8 also says it's not of yourself, it's a gift of God. But it says it in Philippians 1, 29. For it has been granted to you. This is gift language. It has been granted to you here. For the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe, so now we have in this particular verse, the, the ability to believe is a gift of faith. You didn't intrinsically conjure that up inside of you. The ability to have faith in Jesus was a gift given to you by God to have in him. And he says, the first thing you should note is you have been granted or gifted the, the, the gift of faith, but then also in the same way it says, has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, and I actually believe, but also should suffer for his sake. New Testament language never runs away from the fact that suffering is also a gift. It's been granted to you. Now, you're like, oh, here's the, here's the gift of granting of, of suffering. Well, nobody wants that. But Timothy is clear. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, pursue holiness, know Christ, live with him, be close to him, have a relationship with him, will be persecuted. And so faith is not only a gift, but in a crazy way, the suffering that we experience because of our faith in Christ is a gift. Why is that a gift? Because as I said in this first section, it reorders and redefines for us what good days are. Good days are being with Christ, knowing Christ. So with that kind of a, as our anchor, knowing that not only faith is a gift, but suffering is a gift, not God hating you, but instead loving you, that you would be honored, that we would all get to be honored to walk through some kind of persecution for his sake. 
because whoever chooses to lose his life um, for the sake of the gospel will save it. I want you to see a couple, uh, I want you to see a couple ways that he points us towards uh, this hope that we have. There's, there's a couple outward demonstrations of the hope that we have in Christ listed in this text. Let me, let me read this text again for you so you can see it. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Hmm. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? I can think of a lot of people. I can think of a lot of people. If I'm zealous to do what Christ wants me, doesn't that mean likely I'm going to? And so he's going to, after that verse, say yes. I mean, in a lot of ways, he asked the question to, to say yes. And he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. So he's, he's asking the question in such a way that's going to say, uh, you, you're going to say, well, I can think of people. I'm, I'm pretty sure people have suffered for righteousness sake. And he's going to say yes. And if that happens, you will be blessed. And then he tells you this, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So the first thing about this hope in Christ that we have, this deep trust, faith, belief that we have in God is that it it needs to be fearless. It needs to be absolutely fearless. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. A fearless faith. What does that mean? What is a fearless faith? Because, I mean, I look at myself and I am just scared to death most of the time of things. I don't think that means ground your fearless faith on yourself. Because I'm fickle and weak. I think instead, I look to the one who's never fickle, never weak, and always strong in Christ. So my my knowledge of someone who will never ever waver is Christ. And I say, since he will never waver, I can be fearless because I know that. So here we have a deep trust in Jesus that he is the one who's fearless even though I'm always fearful. And I ground it in that. So fearless is more highlighting the greatness of Jesus and maybe even more highlighting my fickle weakness. But we're told to have a fearless faith, and I think that, just to remember, that's grounded in Jesus. But we're also told to have a different, a second kind of hope. It says in verse 15, but in your hearts regard Christ as Lord always. Here it is, being prepared. Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared. Here it is, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that's in you. So the second kind of hope, the first one is a fearless hope. The second one is a well-thought-out, defended hope. If you know anything about apologetics, second, I'm sorry, 1 Peter 3.15 is like the, the anchor verse for apologetics. Apologetics doesn't mean you, like, you say you're sorry a lot. It means, uh, it, it's, it's a, a word that just means to make a defense of. And so it's people that say, I'm making a defense of my belief in Jesus. Belief in Jesus is reasonable for the following, you know, 5011 reasons. Like there's, there's tons of them. Um, And so they anchor it in this particular verse because they say, I'm always prepared to make a defense for anyone. So here we're we're being told that our hope is fearless, but also our hope is a well-thought-out, defended hope. Let me me press in a little bit here and say, Christ is not, he's not honored by a groundless hope. If you have a groundless hope, he's not honored. If you have a hope in him that's just kind of like, well, Pascal's wager, you know, what if? What if he's right? 
Well, hell sounds bad, so yeah, Jesus, I want that. Or if it's just, I hope because, well, mom and dad hoped in Jesus, and so it seems like I should. It's a family deal, that's what we do. This is groundless and, and, and pretty shallow. Now, if you entered into the faith in that way, Pascal's wager, mom and dad passed it on, that's good. Praise God that the Lord put you in an environment where you got to hear about Christ in those particular ways. But, but we don't stay there as believers in Christ. We push ourselves on to have what I say, a well thought out, defendant hope. You don't have to be a biblical scholar to do this. You don't have to know Greek and Hebrew backwards and forwards. You just have to have a Bible and a heart that says, Jesus, show me. Let me quote Piper here, and he, he gives us a good, uh, a good way to think about this. He says, talking about this verse, about having a, uh, being someone who is always prepared to make a defense of anyone who asks you for the hope that you have. He says, I urge you not to run to a book to be able to do this, but run to your prayer closet and ask God with as much honesty as you can, as you can why do I believe in you, God? Why do I count you as my hope and treasure? What is the basis of my hope? And then he says, search your heart. Your answer may have to do with the trustworthiness of the witnesses who wrote the New Testament. He's going to give us a big list of all the possibilities. It could be with the trustworthiness of the witnesses who wrote the New Testament. Or it could be with the self-authenticating character and teaching of Jesus. I mean, no one ever taught like him. No one's ever been like him. That's self-authenticating. That he is who he says he is. Or it may be with the meaning in the sense that Christ gives to history and human life. Or it may relate to the evidence of the resurrection, the empty tomb, and the power of changed lives. Or it may have to do with all the Old Testament fulfilled prophecies that could never take place in anybody else besides Christ. Or with the compelling light of the gospel of the glory of Christ and your personal encounter that you've had with the living Christ. And then he says this, Whatever the answer it is, it must be your answer and not somebody else's. So we're pushed here. If our hope is in Christ in regard to suffering, it needs to be a well thought out, well defended. Now, the first thing I would say is, um, if you don't have that, this isn't beat yourself up now. This is, okay, I'm willing to take on the challenge. I'm willing to do the hard work of getting in and and really knowing why I believe what I believe. Putting people around me that I can ask questions for sure, but I want, it to be, I want it to be my thought. But the second thing is this. When you're ready to give a defense, there's a way to give a defense, <laughs> and there's a way not to give a defense. And, he, and, and Peter wants to make sure, hey, all you zealots, let me, let me help you understand how to give a defense. That's why he says, yet, verse 16, For those that are ready to give the defense, all you apologetic guys, that's all of us, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, notice he doesn't say if, when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame for, grounding his argument, it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. In other words, whenever you're grounded, Whenever, and you'll never arrive, but you'll feel like, okay, I know, I, I know why I believe. I have, a, at least in my mind, somewhat of a well-defended, well-thought-out reason why I have a hope in Christ because of the following reasons. When it's time to have those conversations with people, there's a way to do it. There's a loving way to do it where he says, 
do it with gentleness and respect and having a good conscience. After it's all said and done, after it's over, I want to look back and say, on the whole, I feel like that was good. Not, ah, like 95% of those sentences should have been not said. (laughs) We don't want that. All right. So that's that's the second section is all about, the first one was all about what we need to know externally and the principles of what it looks like. The next one is who's our source? It's Christ, it's faith in Christ alone. The next section is uh, some kind of list of things that prepare us and give us strength in suffering. So he knows in the midst of suffering, whenever you're experiencing suffering, you need to have some, some theological reasons given to us by God to say, give me strength through this. It's hard to endure. And so he's gonna give us some lists, if you will, some things. It, ultimately, there's, there's two things. Um, the first one is he points us to Christ and his victory over unjust suffering that he had at the cross. And the next thing, uh, the second one is he pushes us theologically to think, to think deeply. The theological will have a couple. The first one is just pushing us to Christ. So if we look at Christ and we say, Christ endured unjust suffering, well, that's reason for me right now in this time that I can. Verse 18, um, remember, for it is better to suffer doing good than if one, that it should be God's will than for doing evil. For, so here's the reason, first reason why you can do this. A way to be strengthened in suffering is because Christ himself did it. For, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us back to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The first way that you can be strengthened in your suffering, in the midst of suffering, if maybe you're going through it right now, perhaps one day you will. The way that you can endure through it is because Jesus was willing to do it. Your savior, your master, the one that you have given your life to was willing to experience unjust suffering. And because of that, the most greatest, loving, caring, truthful, holy man that ever lived ever was willing to do it. We can as well. But I'd also, as we're looking at verse 18, like to take a little brief gospel excursus and let's just unpack the beauty of the gospel in verse 18. Excursus is just kind of like a, a sidestep. Um, because I don't want to run over verse 18 and miss the beauty of the diamond of the gospel in verse 18. So there's some amazing things written here for you. One, Christ also suffered once for sins. Sin is what separates us from God. All of our sins have created this vast chasm between us and God and that there is absolutely no way that we can ever have a relationship with him. But God in his infinite mercy was not going to continually just one day pour out all of his wrath on us because of our sins, but instead put his forward his son once and only once because he's the perfect sacrifice for that sin that separated us and created that great chasm. And now Christ Jesus came and destroyed that. And now we are able to be ushered into a relationship with him because he took on the full wrath. He suffered once for sins, meaning we don't have to now. He felt the full brunt of the wrath of God for our sins. If that just kind of like makes you say, oh, that's great, then we need to return to a deeper understanding of the fact that we deserved that. Like our sin 
caused that. Our willing sin caused that. And we deserved it. And he didn't. And he took it. And then to make it even more strong, he says, the righteous for the unrighteous. Meaning, his death was substitutionary. He substituted himself for you. Jesus took our place. The righteous, the perfect, the holy, the one who didn't deserve it, substituted himself in place for the ones who did. We did deserve it. His death was an utterly innocent death and it was for others' sins and not his own. The righteous for the unrighteous. That, this is my favorite, he might bring us to God. Over and over, I tried to get Jordan to sing, let's, let's sing Here's Our King this week. Here is our King, bring us back. No crowd of fans. Anyway, all right, so I, because I, I just love it. And he's like, no, anyway. Um, so y'all can talk to Jordan about that. But <clears throat> I love this, this phrasing, bring us back. I'm just messing with Jordan. Don't, don't like give him a hard time. He, was, he made the right call. That he might bring us back to God. I just love this, this picture of God saying, your sin's being taken care of, been taken care of, the righteous for the unrighteous, and now you are at home safe with God. You have been brought back to your perfect heavenly father. That's the gospel. And if you don't know Christ, if you've never been forgiven of your sin, that can happen for you right now. Believe in him. Back to the idea of suffering. And then he goes into this interesting, deep theological puzzle in verses 19 and 20. So as I said, the way he's, he's pointing us on to have strength in suffering, number one, he points us to Christ ultimately. And the other thing is he points us to some, some, some deep, he pushes our minds theologically to talk about two things, Noah and baptism. And those two things also strengthen us in suffering. The first one is Noah 19, in which he went, um, so we're talking about Jesus being put to death in the flesh, but then being alive in the spirit in which, and speaking of Jesus in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Do what, Peter? (laughs) What he's saying, let me read it one more time. In which he went and proclaimed, Jesus went and proclaimed or preached to the spirits in prison. He did what? Because they were formerly did not obey. Is, is he saying, and this is, this is kind of the first way that you can read it. You can say, is he saying that Jesus went and preached the gospel to people in prison and hell so that even though they're dead, they can have a chance to get saved again, like a second chance, if you will? That, that's not it. Let me, one little thing about, about understanding the Bible. Really, really hard texts should not try to be figured out in and of themselves. Really, really hard texts should be brought out to a bigger perspective, looking at the easier to understand texts and let the easier to understand texts help me understand the harder texts. So like in 1 Corinthians where it says the third heaven, we shouldn't just try to dive into the third heaven and do a Greek study. Like I can understand the third heaven. That's a bad idea. The better idea is to look at the bigger picture of the Bible, 
understand what the Bible's teaching on the whole and let the easier understand text help me understand how to interpret harder understand text. Not diving into third heaven, shouldn't have brought it up. Anyway, back to this. Um, Noah. So how do we understand that? We know that that's not possible in the Bible. There is no second chance after death. That's not how the gospel works. So what is it? Well, to cut to the chase, I don't think it's Jesus preaching in hell to people that are already dead so they can get saved. I think it means this instead. Peter refers to the Old Testament. Now, remember, before the incarnation, that's when Jesus became man. So prior to the incarnation, before Jesus' birth, Jesus was the second person of the Trinity forever. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And they all existed in spirit. So in that particular time, in those appearances in in the Old Testament, and I believe that there are Christ appearances in the Old Testament, they're more spirit than they are Jesus appearing as a human. And so I think that what he's saying is, as Noah preached to these particular people, that it was Christ preaching through him to them, and they didn't repent, they didn't confess Christ, and then they died, and now they are in a sort of prison, waiting for one day to have the final judgment. That makes more sense in the entire looking at it. So this is referring to the Old Testament when Noah lived, where there were sinners that ridiculed Noah for following God. They, Noah experienced suffering, which fits our context because we're talking about suffering. And as that happened, Jesus was sent by God to preach through Noah, ask them to repent, but they didn't. And so whenever they died, now they're living in this spirit of prison because they didn't confess while they're alive that Jesus, that They didn't believe in God. And now because of that, they're one day awaiting in this prison a final judgment. That's hell. But they don't have a chance to repent in hell. They're awaiting one day the final judgment. That's what I think it it means. Now I really took a very difficult text and shortened it because the ultimate point is not trying to figure out Noah. The ultimate point is trying to figure out what does that have to do with suffering? What are you doing, Peter? This is what he's doing. How does that make us suffer better? This is how it makes us suffer better. And Wayne Grudem is giving us a lot of help here. I think Wayne Grudem's got some good insights here. He says this, Noah and his family, so four ways it helps us suffer better. Looking at Noah and Peter's situation. Noah and his family in that particular time were a minority. Actually, he says the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons. Peter literally says eight people. Noah, his wife, his three sons, their three, their three wives, eight people. So he, Peter very much believes in a literal Noah and the ark and eight people. And that should help you think. These writers thought those stories that some people say are crazy literally happen. Jesus talks about Jonah being swallowed by a fish. Jesus thought Jonah was real. Peter thought the ark was real. So we shouldn't shy away or get nervous when people are like, you really think that? Well, yeah, and so did the writers. Back to this. Anyway, so he says eight persons. So as you're looking at eight persons, that's a clear minority. Genesis 6, 5, all the, all the uh, thoughts and actions were only evil continually. Everyone in Genesis 6, 5 that lived in Noah's day were evil. Everyone. And it says, and there was this little minority of a family. Noah, wife, three sons, three daughters. And he saves them. Noah and his family were a minority And Peter's readers, uh, as they were hearing this, they were also in a minority of of being Christians as they're suffering. And he's saying, so we can take solace knowing that even if we're in a minority and we're experiencing suffering, that God's on our side. God was on their side as a minority. God was on Peter's side and his friends that he's writing to as a minority. And if we're in a minority and we're experiencing suffering, 
we can take comfort knowing that God's with us. That's the first one. The second one is this. Noah was a righteous man in the middle of a wicked world. Genesis 6, 5, I've already said, is, describes it as very terrible. And Noah is described right in the middle of all that wickedness as a righteous person. Peter's uh, people that are listening are also suffering as someone who's supposed to be pursuing righteousness. That's what we talked about in, as we say pursuing holiness. Be holy as I am holy, as we read in chapter 1. Um, and for us, for who are pursuing righteousness, we should be pursuing it and knowing that living in the middle of a wicked world isn't something that we have to fret about and freak out about. Noah experienced it, Peter experienced it, and as we're experiencing it, we can take solace knowing, okay, that helps me push through this suffering because I'm not, I'm not an anomaly. I'm not unique. This is normal for Christianity. Next one. Um, Noah was, was bold as a preacher. He was, he was a bold preacher. Peter has told his uh, readers that they are also to be bold in verse 15 always be prepared to make a defense they're also supposed to be bold proclaimers of the gospel and in the same way we should also uh, suffer well with the gospel readily on our lips so we can be strengthened knowing that even though we're experiencing suffering we should be like Noah we should be like these these first century people we should be proclaiming the gospel lastly in Noah's day and this is beautiful the the whole point of building an ark like don't know if you've ever built one. Took a long time. Took a long time. So the whole delay, like build an ark and all of a sudden this big delay before he flooded everything, this big delay was, you've got a shot here, Genesis 6, 5, really sinful people, that if you repent and come to Christ, come to the Lord, be a follower of his, you can be saved. The delay was mercy in the same way Peter is going to say almost that exact same thing in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Jesus has come once and there's a second coming and it's delayed. And the reason why of the delay is for those that are alive that aren't believers to repent and come to know Christ. The delay in the second coming is primarily for the purpose of, if you don't know Christ, repent and then you can go to heaven. You don't have to experience suffering. So he says, Noah's delay... In Noah's day, God was delaying so that they would repent. Peter tells us in, two, in 3 9 the exact same thing a delay in the second coming so that he can repent. And for us, we can declare the gospel boldly right now, saying, Repent. The Lord is delaying so that you can repent. So, as we have the gospel in our lips, as I said, number three, we can take solace in knowing, we can take um, a lot of, gather a lot of strength for suffering, saying, This delay. It's point, ultimately pointing us to a much better place. And those that are persecuting us, it could be that the Lord wants them to be saved. Now, this is where it gets a little crazy. And I'm going to speed through this last one. Eight persons that were brought through water. And then Peter's like, speaking of water, baptism. <laughs> so he's, he's, you know, one of, those, one of those people. Anyway, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. So speaking of water, if you're baptized, it now saves you. Not because you've just gotten wet and you took dirt outwardly off your body, but baptism saves you because of what's already happened in your heart, which is that you are appealing to God for a good conscience. And the reason why you have a good conscience is because you say, my only hope is in Christ. That's the only way I can be washed clean. So now that I've been baptized, I can say, God, the reason why I I know that I'm in good conscience with you is not because I had a water baptism where dirt was removed from my body physically, but instead spiritually, you have already saved me because as we've read in verse 18, 
that Christ suffered for the righteous, uh, right, righteous for the unrighteous, he brings us back to, he died for our sins. And so this baptism, and I know there's a lot of debate, it can get into a lot of theological Baptist debate here. Uh, I don't really want to get into that. The whole point that we're looking at this is the clean conscience. This is a great definition of what baptism means, is that um, only our conscience and our whole lives can be made clean by Christ, by putting our faith in him. And what does that have to do with strengthening us for baptism, uh, for suffering? What does baptism have to do with strengthening us in the midst of suffering? It means this. Whenever suffering happens, whenever we're experiencing suffering happening to us, then we can remember back to our baptism and we can say, the suffering we're experiencing right now against me is not condemnation because of sin. The suffering I'm experiencing right now is because of my Father in Christ because the condemnation for sin was already put on Jesus. And now I have a good conscience. And so whenever I'm going through suffering, we don't ever think, what did I do wrong? That's not how it works. So you can be strengthened in suffering knowing that you're not receiving suffering because of condemnation because Jesus has already received that. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. I'm experiencing suffering not because of sin, because Jesus paid that for me already. I'm experiencing suffering because I am his child. And I have a redefinition of what good days are. And so I can be strengthened in suffering. Baptism, your baptism can strengthen you in suffering because it's a reminder of the fact that your sin's paid for. And then he does this, and this is quite unique. If you remember last week, we talked about submission, subjectivity, and he talks about government and slaves and spouses and all that kind of stuff. He's gonna kind of Jesus juke you here with, with submission and bring it back to submission, but instead he's gonna reverse it and say, not talk about us being submitted to all these things, but he's going to reverse it and say, Jesus is high and lofty and everything is subject to him. Verse 22, or let's, let's finish it. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been all subjected or submissive to him. So he finishes it by helping us see heaven is your ultimate goal. Any level of suffering you experience right here, heaven is infinitely more glorious than this right here. So you can push through anything because of the beauty and the glory of getting to be in heaven. And the greatest thing about heaven when you get there is Jesus is ruling and reigning over everything. He is, it's all about him. And that's a great thing. That's the best news that there is. He's the ruler and reigning king over everything. Every angel, every authority, every power, and all of us are all subject to him. And he's the ruling and reigning king. (laughs) And that's a great reason to worship. We can experience anything, anything this side of glory because of that. Let's pray together. God, be with us now as we worship because you're the ruling and reigning king. No matter what level of suffering happens to us, it's all about you. 
redefine what good days mean in our lives. Help us understand that though we may never experience the suffering outlined and delineated in texts like this because we live in 2016 in America, that doesn't change the fact that we're not supposed to live like them with a heart pursuing you. And if it does come, Lord, I pray that we would be strong, that we would see what suffering looks like in community and we would live that out, that all of our hope, all of our faith, all of our trust would be only in Christ and Christ alone. And because you suffered, we can. Because we might be a minority because people might persecute us but it doesn't matter because we have Christ and the suffering we experience has nothing to do with payment for sin that was all put on Jesus all suffering that we experience is because we are your child because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus God let these truths inflame our hearts right now to worship you praise in Jesus name